0: Welcome to tonight's uh, discussion. Uh, Article 50, one year on. 29th of March last year, uh, Theresa May as Prime Minister sent the formal letter of notification to the EU Council President Donald Tusk uh, to signify that uh, the UK wished to uh, leave the European Union. And 29th of March 2019, next year... Uh, the UK will cease being a member of the European Union. Now, I guess you'll have had to be on some other planet in this last year not to have uh, been deluged with uh, media coverage of the Brexit negotiations. So we thought this evening we should indeed have a discussion as to what we've learned about Brexit, what we've learned about the Brexit process over the last 12 months. And I'm delighted that we have um, a number of colleagues here to uh, speak with their expertise on this uh, topic. We have uh, Tony Travers, who's the interim director of the School of Public Policy here at the LSE. Tony is very well known to so many of uh, you. Uh, Also director of LSE London, uh, a research center at the LSE. Uh, He's a visiting professor in the Government Department. Jill Rutter is Program Director for Brexit uh, at the Institute for Governments and has co-authored a number of the Institute's reports on the implications of Brexit for Whitehall and Westminster. We hope to be joined by Professor Catherine Bernard from Cambridge University, where she is Professor of EU Law and Employment (coughs) Law and uh, Senior Tutor and Fellow of Trinity College. I say we hope to be joined by uh, Catherine. Uh, I understand that she's on a train and she's destined to get here and uh, she's intent on joining us, but uh, we'll improvise as we go along. And last but certainly not least, Simon Hicks is Director of the Political Science and Political Economy Group at the LSE and co-editor of the journal EU Politics, written extensively on EU politics, and now also on Brexit. We've got a division of Labour. I'll be chairing the discussion. Uh, I'm going to ask Tony Travers in a moment uh, to begin, looking at the domestic politics of the Brexit negotiations. I'm then going to invite Jill Rutter... To speak about how Whitehall has handled the negotiations. Hopefully, we will then be joined by Catherine Bernard (laughs) to tell us about the legal constraints on the withdrawal process. And Simon will wrap things up talking about the reactions of the EU27, the prospects for a deal, what we've learned over the last year about a deal. Each of these speakers have been invited to speak for about seven, eight minutes just to give a very brief kickstart to the discussion and then there should be plenty of time for discussion with you, uh, the audience. Um, I'm sure there is a hashtag behind me. Uh, Yes, LSE Brexit, what else would you have expected? We look forward to your comments as the evening uh, progresses uh, on Brexit. I should say, finally, that the panel Is being organized jointly by the European Institute here at the school and also the Institute for Public Affairs at the LSE. Uh, So, without further ado, can you please join me in welcoming our speakers and our first speaker, Tony Travers. Well, thank you, Kevin, and
1: uh, good evening, everyone. This is one of those events rather like those reviews of the year you get in (laughs) December, which comes just before the actual end of the year, begging the question what happens if something occurs in the next two weeks. Um, Suffice to say, it has been one of the most remarkable uh, years in contemporary British politics, uh, apart from the one before it, which, of course, ran from uh, June the 24th to uh, March last year. And, of course, the triggering of Article 50 was an intriguing uh, thing for a government to have done in that it set a time limit for our, the UK's exit from the European Union, set a clock ticking in a way that, I think, for the insider British government, I'm sure Jill will point, uh, talk about this, created a very hard deadline For a system of government, both politically and the civil service, which quite likes malleability, the capacity to kick things off in the future, you know, should we build a runway in the southeast, well, not quite yet, you know, that kind of thing. So it's, it's a hard deadline. And then a few weeks later, just when we thought that, in a sense, triggering Article 50 wasn't enough to... Keepers on our toes, uh, uh, Theresa May announced the unexpected general election, the one that she said wouldn't take place in any circumstances, and then proceeded to lose her majority. So much of the ten months since... Uh, has been explained by these two events. So these two events explain so much of what has happened in UK politics since then. In fairness to Mrs May, some of this started in uh, June 2016, partly because David Cameron had decided to hold a referendum on an issue where he prepared for only one result, or at least didn't prepare for... the government didn't prepare for the result that actually occurred. So everything started more or less from scratch as far as we can see, immediately after the referendum. So we've got new departments, and I'm sure Jill's going to talk about these. I won't go into those in detail. New departments, changes to existing departments within Whitehall. But I think what it's fair to say has happened since then is that the process of Brexit has engulfed Whitehall. It's simply become a massive challenge to the operation of the UK government system, and Personally, I can't think of anything quite like it, not even joining the EU, uh, since the uh, end of the Second World War. I think it's that kind of existential and systemic uh, challenge for the system. So, uh, the civil service and government now have to deliver something. The trouble trib- is they have to deliver this incredibly important policy with a government that has no majority, save supported by the Democratic Unionist Party, It relies within its coalition on any one day on groups that are strongly pro and strongly anti-Brexit, so they've got to keep... uh, Mrs May has got to keep them on side. Uh, The opposition is broadly anti-Brexit, but it's ambiguous, and that makes it even more difficult to work out what will happen next at any point. And, of course, the difficulty that the Prime Minister and the government has, that if they come to any particular and definite policy something that is absolutely easy to see, that either the pro- or the anti-Brexit people within the government's coalition will break away. And in that sense, you know, the constructive ambiguity we've heard so much about remains ambiguous, even if not (laughs) constructive. Uh, So it appears that Whitehall is now massively engaged, not only the departments with the new departments, but in writing policy papers, delivering analysis, producing briefings for ministers. But it's not possible for them or for government publicly to state what exactly the outcomes of this process are going to be. Intriguingly, particularly for me, there are lots of parts of government, or lots of areas of public policy, where it would have been possible for government to have produced a detailed suggestion of where we're going by now, consultation policy, even a policy policy. Agriculture policy, that could probably have been done by now. Migration policy, potentially, by now. Posts, you know, sort of skills and FE and all of that that needed to be improved. If we're to read some of the lessons back out of the Brexit vote, that could have been done by now, even at, even at a more detailed economic policy. But the truth is, even on those spheres of policy, which are not part of the direct negotiations with Brussels, there is silence as well, suggesting that the whole of government is finding it incredibly difficult, to put it mildly, to decide on a lot of these issues. So we are back to the bandwidth this year, really, the sense that the government is spending so much time and so much effort on delivering policies to do with Brexit that there isn't much space on the edge of that for much else. Now, just to conclude, really, what I was going to say, in Parliament, as opposed to within government, of course, the Brexit bill... Is struggling slowly through the Lords, very slowly indeed. Anybody who visits the Lords, you'll see those red screens there on the nights when they're debating it, plodding on slowly through the night with lots of opposition spokespeople speaking, not many government ones except at the end of the evening. There was a major defeat inflicted on part of the bill in the Lords and on the government. Sorry, in the Commons. And thus far, it looks as if the Lords will be able to delay by sort of mild filibuster, different procedures in the Lords, but not in the end, I suspect, to upending the bill altogether. But we'll see. It's going to be delay. Once back in the Commons, there is, of course, the risk of further defeats uh, could be (laughs) inflicted on the government and, of course... It's complicated for the government because the more the bill is delayed, the more it plays with the idea of delaying coming to final positions, which in turn could aggravate MPs to rebel one way or the other. So in a sense, delay also plays to the government's hand there as well. There has to be real progress by autumn this year. We will reach the point when there has to be some form of um, certainty by that point. Um, unless, you know, we're going to have a no-change transition, Um, and that, of course, in turn would rely on the EU 27 uh, coming to an agreement about that, and I'm sure Simon will say something about their propensity or willingness to do that. So it's either that or, more more, uh, challengingly, uh, no deal. Though there's not much preparation visibly for that at the moment. So if I can just conclude by saying it's clear that the uh, UK government's uh, machinery appears to be very much, uh, to put it mildly, um, overwhelmed, if anything, by Brexit, with very little space to do much else apart from that. There are clear struggles between ministers inside the government. I mean, interestingly, the EU 27 has kept together quite well. Whether the uh, UK Cabinet 27 or whatever the number is have kept together quite so well is a moot point, or less so probably. (laughs) I think it's intriguing how far this is evidence of the UK as a unitary state. The negotiations are taking part with the UK government as a single entity negotiating uh, with the EU, not much room for Wales and Scotland and the devolved nations having a role in that despite their best efforts. We are left towards the end of this process so far with a struggle potentially between the government and parliament and the issue of how far parliament will exert itself and assert itself to overrule the government if it thinks or if a majority of MPs believe they're not getting something that will be good for their constituents. That's yet to play itself out. So I think that one year on, um, we are in a position where the government's got a long way in terms of internally being able to describe the position, outline where the options are and all of that, but found it virtually impossible to come out publicly with the detail of what any of those are. So that points us either, I think, to a very soft transition or to a very hard Brexit.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Tony, very much indeed. I wonder if we could just give Tony one more minute uh, to address more in terms of the internal politics of the Conservative Party. And if you think in terms of the last year, are the hard Brexiteers in the Conservative Party more or less influential now. Is Theresa May more beholden than she was in March 2017? Well, probably
1: more beholden to two fragments of her party, which is both the... We always knew about the Brexiteers. They've been around to cause damage to Conservative leaders since at least, you know, Mrs Thatcher. Um, And but now we know of the existence of probably a smaller but potentially equally awkward group of pro-Brexiteers who now have their own leadership and capacity to operate. Um, And so I think the the, the sum total of the easily aggravated subset of her MPs is rather bigger now than it was then. That's not quite the answer to your question. That doesn't get on to the the cabinet ministers who appear at least on occasion to have enormous freedom to come up
0: with their own policy. Okay. Thanks. Jill, is government keeping it on track?
2: Um, okay, thank you very much. I'm Jill I'm from the Institute for Government. If you don't know what the Institute for Government is, check out our website. Uh, but we're a think tank dedicated to making government more effective, uh, which we've been trying to do over the last 10 years. I'm not <laughs> going to give any sort of verdict on our success. But anyway, so my brief is to talk about negotiating Brexit and Whitehall. I think one of the things that's really interesting is I'm going to focus largely on the negotiations with the European Union, but I think, as Tony brought out quite uh, clearly, that's only one of the many sets of negotiation that people are currently engaged in. There are negotiations within the Cabinet and within the government. Uh, there are clearly negotiations with the devolved administrations of varying degrees of fractiousness and success. There are negotiations with, um, with Parliament. Um, Tony mentioned that, of course, the referendum, then Theresa May's accession to power, triggered a reorganisation of Whitehall to prepare for Brexit. And the most notable thing was, uh, was the very hasty decision to replace the Cabinet Office Europe unit that David uh, Cameron had briefly tasked with preparing for Brexit under Oliver Letwin, uh, headed at that time by Ollie Robbins, with a freestanding department for exiting the EU. started off with 50 people in that nucleus. In the Cabinet Office has now grown to around 700 people to establish, uh, whether this was a conscious decision about the trajectory of future policy or not, to establish a freestanding Department for International Trade, with the implication that the UK would be running a vigorous independent trade policy. And therefore, as we all, when we got to understand actually what the customs union was, meant that we were probably leaving the customs union under Liam Fox. Uh, That department has grown its nucleus, which was the trade policy group. They also added in UK trade and investment and UK export finance. There were some other consequential reorganizations, most notably the abolition of the Department of Energy and Climate Change to create space for these extra departments, and it's uh, Uh, transformation into BASE, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, and a consequent transfer of higher education, open brackets, teaching, close brackets, to the Department for Education. So those are the machinery of government changes. Of course, one of the interesting things is some of us, she said, plug for IFG, uh, said don't create a freestanding separate department, For exiting the EU, you will discover that basically what you need is a Cabinet Office-style coordination function because actually the person who is in charge of the negotiations is not the Secretary of State for exiting the EU. It is the Prime Minister. (laughs) Surprise, surprise, roll on to September 2017. The Department for exiting the EU was decapitated. Not bad news for David Davis, but his Permanent Secretary, Olly Robbins, gave up one of his three roles and moved into the Cabinet Office to head up the Cabinet Office Europe unit, uh, directly working for the Prime Minister in sort of a bit of a recognition of what had been going on all the time. Anyway, so what I want to talk about briefly in my time was what difference has Brexit made to Whitehall and how is Whitehall running Brexit? Brexit. Um, I think one of the things, Tony says Brexit is engulfing Whitehall, but actually the impacts are very, very variable. We're about to put out some figures, hopefully coming to a 10 o'clock news bulletin near you later tonight, which shows that actually there is a big difference between departments which are in the front line and very, very deeply affected by Brexit. Not just those departments I mentioned, DexU and DIT, but uh, most notably departments like DEFRA, where basically their business is implementing European stuff. And so they have had a radical change. If you look at the figures for, for DEFRA, DEFRA's staff has already gone up by 65 70% since the referendum. It's basically sort of tracking to double in size, um, completely reversing the cuts since 2010 and the associated loss of expertise. Um, so there's big changes, but they're not evenly distributed. But what's the system? Anyway, Okay. We've been through phase one. I think it's very important to remember phase one is not finished. Uh, the joint report, sufficient progress, was that? It was progress enough to move the thing forward. It was not a done deal. And if you look for the agenda for the technical talks this week, you will see those hoary old favourites, citizens' rights, the Irish border, are coming back yet again. Um, but actually, phase one, both for the 27 and for Her Majesty's Government were, in a sense, the easy phase. Certainly in sense of implications for Whitehall, there were really only three big departments that had to be involved beyond Dexu and the Cabinet Office. The Treasury led on the money, Mm. and to all intents, we're told the Treasury did quite a good job uh, in some forensic analysis of what liabilities uh, the UK was prepared to meet or not. The Home Office uh, led on citizens' rights, And then there's a bit of a question mark about who actually led on Ireland. Probably number 10. That's actually what happens when anything serious in Ireland is going on. Because remember, the Northern Ireland office, at the same time as trying to restore the Stormont executive, uh, is an incredibly small department. And that process is all overseen by what first out was quite a small negotiation subcommittee. It's subsequently been expanded. And one of the reasons you have to expand it is that phase two... If and when we get on beyond sort of future principles or whatever, the sort of thing Michel Barnier probably thinks goes into the withdrawal agreement, when you get into the nitty-gritty of negotiating the UK's uh, deal, then that becomes uh, something that really will involve most government departments. So if you look at the sort of chapters you tend to get in a trade deal... You will have the Treasury on financial services. You will have BAEs liaising with business, covering all their sectors, but also interested in intellectual property, in business regulation. DEFRA will be looking at what does it say about agriculture and fish and environmental regulation. Department of Health on pharma. Um, Home Office, again, on migration regimes. Department for Transport on keeping all those transport links going loads of government departments' interest in regulations that come to the EU. For example, one of the very big implementers of EU regulations is the Health and Safety Executive, which reports to the Department of Work and Pensions. Open brackets, who knew? But anyway... um So, you know, Treasury on tax, look at the EU's level playing fields. They're very worried. The rogue UK is going to undercut them on corporation tax, spurred on by our friends in the US. Uh, HMRC, you know, are we part of the VAT area? Are we not part of the VAT area? What's all that about? And new customs processes. So phase two genuinely will have to be a real cross-government effort. And I think it's fair to say that there's very little sign yet that Whitehall has actually worked out what, when and how it will staff up those negotiations. We've been told as part of a report, another plug, coming out hopefully in in the spring, uh, spring, yeah, any time before sort of July, uh, that, uh, that actually departments are saying, if we don't know, we need to know how many people and when we need to engage them. Because one of the things that is cracking up in Whitehall are some of the HR processes around getting people on board, getting people through the... What they call onboarding is incredibly difficult. So that's what you need to do to support the negotiations. But remember, that is not the only front Whitehall is having to fight on. Whitehall is having to implement. Now, I went in January, the Infrastructure and Projects Authority, which is a sort of thing that runs the portfolio of big government projects, invited uh, invited a number of us who'd done reports or worked on the Olympics to come back and talk about lessons from the Olympics for uh, implementing Brexit. There's a lot of implementation to go on. There's the new border. What's going to happen there? There's settled status. There's registering people. There's setting up new regulators. There's getting business ready. There's rolling over that ever-increasing number of free trade agreements and other agreements that uh, keep the planes flying and keep uh, things rolling over the border. But where the Olympic analogy broke down was at least in 2005, we knew that we were implementing in 2012... We knew it was in London, and we knew the Summer Games was what we were trying to do. So one of my colleagues said, uh, actually implementing Brexit is like you don't know whether you're implementing in 2010, 2012, 2015, or beyond. You don't know whether it's in London, Manchester, or Belfast, and you don't know whether you're implementing the Summer or the Winter Games. (laughs) So it's a massively more complex task. (laughs) Meanwhile... Uh, we had eight Brexit bills announced in a sort of Queen's speech that otherwise looked like a list of government handout bills to private members. We had eight bills. That's now risen to 11 Brexit-related pieces of legislation. None are yet on the statute book. And if you look, and again, plug a nice little tracker we've got, uh, got going, the timetables for all of them are moving inexorably to the right. That means that when you look at Tony's hard deadline of... Uh, of uh, March 2019. Quite a lot of those absolutely need to be on the statute book against various of those scenarios. Uh, we are ending up with a sort of essay crisis to end all essay crisis there that 's just the primary legislation we 're already told that under the withdrawal bill we need uh, a thousand plus statutory instruments to come and Parliament, of course, one of the big battles in the withdrawal bill is about Parliament having more of a role in sifting and scrutinizing the government 's idea. We just slip them all through through negative procedures no thank you That's, uh, this is about parliamentary sovereignty. We really want to scrutinize all of those so that is going to be a massive headache both for parliament but also for the officials that have to support that process so just a quick preview uh i see michael crick in the audience this is still under embargo but anyway so we reckon that what's it what's the, what's brexit cost us so far i just thought we might end with a bit on that we think it's cost around 400 million quid in extra spending in 2017-18 uh Possibly, the Chancellor's already said he'll allocate another £1.5 next year and the year after. Basically, almost all that money so far has gone on new staff, uh, either permanent staff, largely permanent staff, quite a lot of temps, a bit of consulting. But we haven't actually seen anything yet. The big spend is yet to come.
0: Thank you, Joe. Just to complete the focus with uh, Whitehall... Am I correct in the hearing you say that um, DEXU has effectively become under the control of the Prime Minister and certain areas, uh, Treasury, the Home Office, (coughs) led by soft Brexiteers at best, as it were, uh, have been more trusted to be involved in the negotiations? But Uh this sounds like a very much a Prime Ministerial control driven. Balance.
2: I think it's really interesting. In terms of where the sort of, you know, uh, locus of the sort of negotiating is, it's Ollie Robbins, yeah. you know, the detail is all done between Ollie Robbins and Sabina Wayrand, the sort of, you know, uh, the Barnier person who does the work uh, as opposed to the figurehead. So that seems to be where there's sort a of real negotiation. Obviously, Ollie Robbins now reports directly into the prime minister. Dexu still has a mass, Dexu is shepherding through the withdrawal bill. It's still got uh, coordinating this. I think the National Audit Office said there were 313 separate work strands in Whitehall on Brexit when they counted back in November. I think what's happened, though, and one of the things that's real pro- really a problem, and that goes to a bit of what Tony was saying, is that there are two. We've had two very different decision-making regimes over the tenure of Theresa May as Prime Minister. So the period before she lost her majority was number 10 control freakery, and this actually, I think, contributed to the tensions between Ollie Robbins and David Davis. So basic decisions were made insofar as they were made very closely by the Prime Minister, Nick Timothy, you know, working for Theresa May on the Daily Telegraph, Fiona Hill, very close, very hugged, and quite a control freaky atmosphere with other ministers who weren't allowed to come out and say very much. Post-loss of the majority, that completely has broken down. And what you basically have is, I think, having watched government over quite a long time, Tony might want to comment, an unprecedented degree of cabinet indiscipline yeah. mm. about ministers freelancing, making their own alliances. it David Davis and uh, you know, Philip Hammond article. Is it Philip Hammond now liaising with Liam Fox? So it's basically sort of you know, ministers freelancing all around. And a huge amount of activity that in any normal cabinet you would expect to see ministers being sacked for is now just, oh, yeah, God, it's them again, and stuff like that. Um, But the trouble is, and the trouble Whitehall all people say is, we can do all the work, but it actually does us no good if no decisions are being made. So you can meet and meet and meet, but someone somewhere has to Mm. decide something. Mm. And I think the absolute agonising process leading to the Prime Minister's speech at Mansion House ten days ago which is easily two months, if not 14 months too late, uh, just shows how difficult it is to get any progress in decision-making in right Whitehall.
0: Thank you. Okay. Tony,
1: I just, I well, just do add, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> both freelancing and positioning for the future, isn't yeah. it? So it's doubly complicated, because some of it's about now and about Brexit, and some of it's simply about the classic, normal future, what am I going to do in politics in the future? So it's in two dimensions,
0: even worse than it might be if it were in one. Okay, let's uh, look at the EU dimension. Simon.
3: Yeah, so I will, I will focus more on the politics of uh, the EU side and also the politics of the relationship between the EU27 and the UK. Um, uh, first of all, let me say a bit about the, the, the process. I mean, we've heard a bit about phase one and phase two. Let me fill in some of those details. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a distinction between two different types of deals that are going to be made. The first deal is going to be the so-called Article 50 withdrawal agreement. The Article 50 withdrawal agreement will cover several things. It'll cover the three key items that we have to be have to be agreed, which is our financial liability, citizens' rights of EU nationals in the UK and UK nationals on the continent, and the Irish border. The second thing it will cover will be the transition agreement. Uh, The transition agreement cannot be endless. That's not just a politics from the UK side. In the UK, of course, you cannot – there's no way you're going to get through the House of Commons and through the Brexiteers, the idea that there's a transition agreement that could be continuously renewed. What we don't uh, quite appreciate is also from the EU side there's a big legal constraint on that, in that you cannot have a transition agreement Mm. as part of a withdrawal agreement because – that would say that's beyond the competence of a withdrawal agreement. If it's a transition agreement, that's actually a trade agreement if it's going to be continually renewed. That has to be agreed under different sections of the treaty. So a withdrawal agreement can only agree a very limited transition agreement, and the EU would like that transition agreement to run and finish in December 2020, which was a bit of a surprise from London. London went, well, actually we wanted it to finish a bit after that. How come you guys want to finish before we wanted it to finish? And they said, well, that's the end of the the multi-annual financial framework. That's the end of your payments largely into our current budgetary round, that naturally fits our cycle, our political cycle of the term of the Commission, the budgetary framework, and ahead of the next European Parliament elections. How come you wouldn't realise that? <laughs> um, and then, I'll come back to these issues, because then, separately, once we have left on at uh, midnight, Central European time, on the 29th of April 2019, or 11pm yeah. in London, um, yeah then actually we're in, into the transition agreement. Only then will we, we be signing the second deal, which is actually the most important deal. The kind of withdrawal agreement is small fry compared to the real deal, which is the future relationship. Future relationship is the agreement between the UK and the EU27 that will be the future thing going forward for 10, 20, 30, N years going forward, that will only be signed and ratified after we have left, and the EU will negotiate with us as a third country, as if they're negotiating with Japan, Korea, Mexico, whoever. Um, Basic bits of that may be agreed beforehand, but it will not be signed and will not be ratified until afterwards. The other thing to bear in mind is there's different ratification thresholds. There's different hurdles to get through. The Article 50 agreement is a relatively low threshold to agree. Qualified majority in the Council, simple majority in the European Parliament, and the British Parliament, so House of Commons, House of Lords. The future relationship has to be unanimous agreement in the Council, simple majority in the European Parliament and probably ratification in all of the EU 27 member states, including the regional parliaments, because the agreement will cover more than is currently in the EU treaties. And if if the EU signs an agreement with anybody externally, a third country, and includes in that agreement things that are not covered by the EU treaty, for example, things like investment, it has to be ratified in national constitutions. Uh, And therefore, what we saw with the EU-Canada agreement, it was originally thrown out by the Walloon Parliament, by a good friend of mine, Paul Magnette, who used to be a professor of EU politics. Um, he was the leader in the, of the socialist government in Wallonia. They threw it out. It had to be, it had to be uh, renegotiated. So imagine signing a very liberal free trade agreement with an Anglo-Saxon economy and trying to ratify it through the French National Assembly and the Walloon National Parliament. It's not going to happen very easily. So I'll come back to this. But one thing is, I found remarkable over the last year is despite our, mem- our ex- length of our membership of the EU... British politicians still don't understand the EU... ...and EU politicians still don't understand Britain. It's remarkable how they kind of talk past each other... ...and are kind of really surprised. So, for example, the, you know, at the beginning the UK said... ...why can't we just have mutual recognition of everything? Why can't we just be liberal and free and open? This was David Davis. Why can't you be more creative? And essentially Barnier and his people around him said... ...you've got to be kidding. We don't even have that inside the EU. We don't have mutual recognition of services inside the EU. Why would we give it to you outside the EU... And you can't have mutual recognition of all this other stuff because mutual recognition inside the EU single market is backed up by the whole EU legislative agenda and by policing by the European Court of Justice in case anyone breaks the rules. So we don't have that. It's not included in any trade agreement with anybody outside. We're not going to start giving it to you. And that seemed to be a surprise to London. The other big surprise for London, I think, was that they thought, well, the EU is obviously going to break up and there will be these different coalitions and we'll be able to pick them off one by one. Well, the EU has a tried and tested method for negotiating deals with third countries, and the UK is becoming a third country, which is the heads of government in the council, by unanimous agreement, agree a set of terms, and they give it to the commission to go and negotiate. And the commission goes and negotiates, and they say, well, the partner you're negotiating with says, we don't like these terms. And the commission says, I'm sorry, my hands are tied. I can't change them. You have to go and ask the governments. And and the governments say, oh, well, this is a unanimous agreement. We can't change it. I'm sorry. And and the EU knows it's very good at that. It's done that time and time again, negotiating trade agreements with Canada, with South Korea, with everybody across the world, most recently with Japan. And the EU tends to get what it wants. The reason it gets what it wants is because it's the world's largest market. The US and the EU and China together, those three markets make up 50% of global GDP and 48% of global trade. The UK represents 2% of global GDP, and 2.6% of global trade. So when you're negotiating with a big monster like the EU single market, you're in a very weak position, and it seems remarkable to me the British government didn't seem to realise that when it started the negotiations. But equally, the EU doesn't seem to understand the UK side. We saw the, we saw the most recent example of this, which is the, in December there was the, the TED, the, a temporary agreement on, on the, base, the three elements of the withdrawal agreement. Um, there was the, the agreement on the uh, liability, the agreement on citizens' rights, and the agreement not to agree on Ireland. And three options were put in on Ireland. Option A was that uh, there would be no border because there'd be an gr- agreement in a trade agreement between the EU and the UK that would mean there wouldn't need to be a border. Option B would be that then the UK would stay – the whole of the UK would stay in the Customs Union, so you wouldn't need a border. And if they fail to agree those two things, then there would be a fallback, which is option C, which is that Northern Ireland on its own would stay in the Customs Union. So the the EU side then said, well, the British government has signed up to this. The Prime Minister's signature is there on the deal. So therefore, they must be serious that option C is a feasible option. Let's flesh out option C so at least we have a, a backstop if there can be no agreement. And then there's uproar in the House of Commons, and Theresa May stands up and said, no British Prime Minister would ever agree to anything, would ever agree to a separation between Northern Ireland and the continent. To which, in Brussels, they're scratching their head going, but in December you just signed that. I don't understand how... Of course, they don't understand. Everybody could have told them there was no way that politically any prime minister in Britain was ever going to agree to there being a border between Northern Ireland and the mainland. You could never get that through the House of Commons. Even, of course, even Labour now, with Jeremy Corbyn and his sympathy to Sinn Féin, is not going to agree to that. So, you know, if they'd had their own political radar of politics in London, there's no way they would have uh, would have uh, uh, underestimated what was going to happen on that. One of the most frustrating things I find is we've actually moved quite a long way, despite the kind of daily moaning and whinging about us not not agreeing and everybody arguing, we've actually moved quite a long way. We're pretty close to a withdrawal agreement. We're pretty close to a transition agreement. I'm confident the deals can be done. We also moved a long way in terms of what the British government is going to ask for. The British government is asking for what Boris Johnson calls Canada plus, 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 which is a free trade agreement plus every bell and whistle he can think of to add to it. The EU side has already said, there's no way we can agree to that. There's no way we can agree to free movement of financial services. We haven't agreed to that in any other free trade agreement with any other country. We cannot agree to mutual recognition. We cannot agree to regulatory equivalence because we don't trust you guys. And there's no way we'll recognize your standards as mutual as the same as our kind of standards to give you free access like passporting for financial services. So we think a basic free trade agreement. I actually think a basic free trade agreement is probably where we're heading because we haven't got much time to agree it after transition. Um, We've only got two years to agree it and ratify it and implement it. That's not very long. The threshold is incredibly high. Ratification in all national parliaments, I think it's 32 parliaments, would have to ratify the deal that's been done. And there isn't an appetite to give bankers in the City of London free access to the single market. Try and get that through the Walloon Parliament.
0: Thank you, Simon, very much indeed. Catherine, welcome. We know that you've had Herculean efforts to get here this evening, uh, but you've joined us on stage when um, we've covered uh, the domestic politics, we've covered Whitehall, we've covered the EU negotiation process. What we're waiting for you to tell us is what we've learned in terms of the legal constraints on the outcome.
4: Well, thank you very much. And first of all, I apologise very much for being late. I spent Aaron uh, hour and three quarters sitting on a train, most of it outside Wellin City, which is not uh, Wellin North, which is not a place where I'd recommend you spend a wet uh, Monday evening, especially when you know you're getting ever later. Um, now, I'm going to talk a little bit about the law. I'm basically going to give the legal backbone to what Simon has um, said. I realise that the law is a rather dull constraint and also turns people's stomachs, but the reality is that the law does provide the framework for what has happened, what is happening and what will happen. I'm not such a purist as to say that um, the law is utterly divorced from politics but the reality is the EU has law on its side and it's also worth remembering that um, the EU is a legal construct and so they hang on very dearly to matters of law. I want to take us back to um, triggering of Article 50, which occurred, of course, on the 29th of March 2019. Um, A month later, the European Council published its guidelines, and these guidelines actually proved to be incredibly important there are guidelines that um, the UK, of course, had to know about, but really has, they never got the, the, the publicity or the ventilation that they should have done because, in fact, everything that was in the guidelines has come to pass. And just as the EU predicted, so the EU said, essentially, I slightly um, uh, uh, shorten it, but they said that there will, in fact, be three phases. Phase one, which will be on the divorce... Uh, looking at the three big-ticket items, uh, namely citizens' rights, the Northern Ireland border, and the budget, and something will need to be done about agencies and also something about the free trade agreements. And only if sufficient progress had been made on Phase 1 will we move into Phase 2, which is where we are now, which is transition and also an overall understanding of the framework of the future relationship, And then essentially phase three will be the future relationship, which will only be negotiated in substantive terms once we have left the European Union. So that's what they said in the 29th of April. This has been applied, and if you look at the draft political guidelines on the future deal, they are still harking back to the key Pillars, the key principles that were advocated way back in April. Now, there's also quite an important technical legal point. What we're doing at the moment is we're essentially doing the divorce, and we're doing it under Article 50, which is now. Um, bread and butter to everyone in this audience in a way that probably wasn't three years ago but now everyone knows what Article 50 is. Article 50 is about the divorce and the divorce, the terms of the divorce were more or less agreed in Uh, on the 8th of December uh, 2017 in the joint report uh, that Simon has been referring to. Now that joint report is not legally binding, it was largely a political document and that joint report had to be translated into legal terms. David Davis's rather unfortunate remarks... Um, which were made on the Andrew Marr programme just after the um, rather dramatic summit conclusions on the 8th of December meant that actually he looked like he was reneging on some of the commitments that had only been made a couple of days before. And for that reason, the EU said, right, we need to get the terms of the agreement nailed down. And that's what you have in here, which is the draft withdrawal agreement, which also includes terms on transition. Now, the draft withdrawal agreement, um, 120-odd pages, 160-odd articles, a couple of protocols, it's really pretty substantial. There's a hell of a lot of work has been done by the EU on the draft withdrawal agreement, while... The UK has been busy speechifying and coordinating who was going to do the speeches. The EU has been out drafting substantive provisions. And my God, is it substantive? They really have got the first mover advantage here because they have drafted what they want, including on Ireland. And of course, it's put us on the back foot. We've got to come up with some pretty compelling um, reasons why we don't want that <coughs> now what they've done which is also clever is to wrap up in the withdrawal agreement in part four the section on transition now as any law student in this room will tell you transition is usually the dull bit in the statute it's the bit you gloss over and say it's not going to take very long but let's ignore the transition but actually for us transition is really very important Because, of course, what we're going to get from the 29th of March 2019 till what the um, EU says is the 31st of December 2020 is a more or less status quo transition, status quo, but um, without access to the EU institutions. And that's something I want to come back to in a moment if I've got time. Why is it interesting to just spend a a moment on transition from a legal point of view? Well, the answer is Article 50 says nothing about transition. And because Article 50 says nothing about transition, there were some people out there saying, actually, there's no legal competence, no legal basis for transition. Now, most people don't take that view. Most people say, actually, Article 50, although it doesn't refer to transition, Article 50 does say that any divorce any withdrawal agreements got to take into account the future relationship with the eu and so that clearly does require a bridge so you do need transition but transition does need a bridge to somewhere and that's where the new draft guidelines fit in now forgive me if you're getting a bit Um, overwhelmed by different terminology and different um, documents. But just to be clear, we are really talking about three pillars here. Withdrawal, the divorce, Article 50. Transition, also wrapped up in the withdrawal agreement, Article 50. And then what goes on in the future, the future deal. Now, all we are going to get in the next few months, if we're fortunate, and if things go to plan in the March European Council, is a political declaration as to the framework of what the future shape of the UK's relationship will be. We will not get the deal. And the reason why we won't get the deal, certainly before we leave, is because there is a legal point. And the legal point is that the EU cannot deal, do a free trade agreement with one of its own members. It can only do a free trade agreement with a third country. Now, if we were clever, we could get round that problem. We could say, well, all the negotiations on the deal can be done prior to the 29th of March 2019, and then you sign it on the 30th of March, you know, one minute past midnight. That would be the clever way of doing it. But it seems unlikely that will happen. One, because remember those guidelines I mentioned from April 2017? They did not foresee that, and everything that was foreseen... Um, has um, come to come to pass secondly it's going to take some time to negotiate the future deal and time is not on our side because we are leaving in just over a year's time and thirdly as simon rightly said it's very likely that any future deal and it might be deals it might be treaties plural um, will be adopted under different legal bases And those legal bases, for those of you who are interested, are likely to be either Article 207, which is a legal basis that the Canadian CETA, the Canadian Free Trade Agreement, was adopted under, or under Article 217, which was a legal basis that the Ukraine Association Agreement was adopted under. And the procedure is laid down in Article 218. Now, if you're losing the will to live and think, thank you, you're lucky stars that you are not a lawyer, just remember this is our bed, bread and butter. Now, 218 will be the new Article 50. People will be talking about 218 in <laughs> some months' time in a way that Article 50 just drops off the. So, their one, one
3: year. Uh, you can come back and we'll talk about Article 218. Absolutely. <laughs> but book your seats <laughs>
4: now. Um, It'll just ago. be me and my mum in the audience. Um, but Article late lays down the, the, the procedure. Now, it's very likely, given the nature of the agreement that's going to be entered into, sort of Canada+++, plus, plus, plus it's likely that it will be what's called a mixed agreement, which is a means of agreement that needs to be agreed both by the EU and also by the member states. And in those member states, some of them require referenda... Some of them require ratification, but it's certain that they will require ratification by national and regional parliaments. Probably not referenda, but we're never quite sure. But there will need to be ratification. There will need to be ratification by um, the national and regional parliaments, and a country like Belgium, as you've already heard, has is it six or seven of them. Six. Six. And, of course, that includes Wallonia. So it may be that what we're talking about is um, all of this takes time. And so the future deal is going to be somewhere down the, down the line. Now, if you accept my analysis, if you accept my analysis that, in fact, it's going to take a while to get to um, the deal itself, let's, say, let's be generous, let's say it takes three years. And then it takes another year for the national constitutional processes, namely the national ratification. We're talking possibly four years or so from 2019. Some people say five years, some people say even longer, but let's say four or five years. If you do the maths, clearly a a transition period... Um, of um, just shy of two years will not be enough to get us over the line to where we are now to our future trading relationship so a lot of people think that the transition period will have to last longer than the um, just shy of two years or 20 months that is currently envisaged that raises an interesting legal question how do you do it given the uncertainty of the legal basis over transition in the first place Watch out to see if in the revisions uh, of the withdrawal agreement, the text that I've got in front of me, of course, is what the EU has put on the table. The UK has not had um, its say in the negotiations. Well, it's talking negotiating at the moment. We haven't seen the UK's version. Just watch to see if there's a clause that allows for some sort of rollover of the transition period, an extension beyond December uh, 2020. So we've got... Withdrawal, divorce, going ahead at the moment. We've got transition wrapped up in um, the uh, withdrawal. And then we've also got the future deal. If I've got one minute left, I'll just say something about the domestic um, legal scene. The domestic legal scene is, of course, the divorce needs to be given effect to in UK legislation. And that's where the EU withdrawal bill fits in. The EU withdrawal bill is the bill that's currently going through the Houses of uh, Parliament at the moment. It's currently in the House of Lords, where they are having some very high level debates on it most people think the withdrawal bill will be passed that there might be there will be some concessions to um, uh, k- keep the lords on side but in reality the lords will not block the passage of this bill and once it becomes a bill or once it becomes a, it ceases to be a bill it becomes an act that act has the effect of turning off the european communities act nineteen seventy two which was the act which took us in to the European Union. So the Withdrawal Bill will turn the European Communities Act off, including the key pillars of the Act, the principles of supremacy of EU law, so if there's a conflict between EU law and national law, EU law prevails, and the principle of direct effect, which is about the enforceability of EU law in national courts. The problem is transition says we've got status quo. So, in fact, what is turned off by the Withdrawal Bill will have to be turned back on by, in order to give effect to transition. And that's why there's going to be a second bill called the Withdrawal and Implementation Bill, which, uh, which is known as the WABE for short. And the Withdrawal and Implementation Bill will have to turn back on what has been turned off ...by the Withdrawal Bill. Now, the other point to note is the Withdrawal Bill gives dramatic powers to the executive. You will have heard about these Henry VIII clauses. These Henry VIII clauses um, give the executive really significant powers... ...to amend not just secondary legislation, statutory instruments, but also Acts of Parliament. And this is very unusual. It's unusual for the executive to be able to amend Acts of Parliament, primary law... And so there's a lot of concern about the scope of those powers but those powers are absolutely necessary because without those powers, we cannot deliver Brexit effectively. It's thought that somewhere in the region of about 1,000 statutory instruments are going to have to go through Parliament as soon as the withdrawal bill becomes an act. And some of these statutory instruments are vastly complicated. Just think about the area of financial services. Think about the areas that you perhaps work in. You just get a flavour of the sheer complexity of what the civil service is having to deal with. And so I imagine I'm repeating the point that Jill made, and I will conclude on this. There is vast, vast demands being currently placed on the civil service, and there is a real issue of capacity. Brexit is going to happen. These agreements are going to be delivered, but it is taking its toll quite significantly. Thank you very much indeed. Thank
0: you. Thank you for that, and thank you to each of the panelists for their uh, expert, superb uh, contributions. We now have the opportunity of opening it up to a discussion. There's colleagues here with uh, microphones. Uh, I'm going to invite you to uh, simply say who you are, and then, because it's a large audience, if we could come to the questions uh, very quickly, uh, please. There's a gentleman halfway up here.
3: Uh, We're going to take a group of three at a time. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Thomas. I wanted to ask you a quick question, which is probably burning for a lot of people here in the UK and uh, EU nationals. What do you think the future is going to look like for EU nationals living in Britain, and how is that unfolding from the deal that we're negotiating now?
0: Okay, thanks. Could we take the gentleman here, please?
3: John Strafford. I think you have forgotten the politics of this, um, a recent opinion poll has just shown that 67% of the people believe that the EU is bullying us. And there will come a point in time, if we take four or five years and have to go through 32 parliaments to get get it ratified, where the British people will say, enough of this, stuff you, we're leaving, we're not going to pay you any more money, we're going to go to WTO uh, terms, and you, European Union, sort yourselves out. How feasible do you think that might be?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love the tonal balance between the statements... (laughs) And then the, the question. Thank you. Could we take the lady here? We'll have other rounds of questions as well.
4: Thank you all. You are absolutely brilliant. Um, after this gentleman, I'm completely the other side. You've all assumed that Brexit is going to happen. Now, from the legal point of view, and from the other man- members, please, can you say if it is possible at all for Brexit not to happen?
0: Okay. Thanks. Oh, we'll have other rounds of uh, friend, question. questions. Um... <laughs> I don't think I've been at a discussion before where the, uh, or where the panel is applauded before the answer. The but... <laughs>
4: question um, is being applauded. It's a
0: question. Okay, okay. Um, I wonder, uh, Simon, do you want to start with uh, 67% uh, think the EU 27 is bullying us? Why don't we simply walk away?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I've been looking at public opinion polls in Switzerland and Norway recently, and what is remarkable is that uh, Swiss and Norwegian public opinion has gradually become more and more anti-European since they've been on the outside dealing with the EU. The EU is a very rigid legal community that works by unanimity, and so it's very hard to budge. And so when you're negotiating with it, you invariably lose, and your public gets angry and annoyed. And so the Swiss and Norwegians have gradually become more and more anti-European over the last... Uh, ...particularly Norwegians compared to Swedes or Swiss compared to Austrians. And, and I expect the UK public will become increasingly anti-European through this process... ...and in the future going forward. Um, it may well get to a point where we say, well, we're fed up with this, we want to leave... ...when you made that politically might be beautiful but economically would be disastrous. I mean, all of the economic modelling of that is that the impact would be somewhere between 7 and 11% of GDP. Um, so, I mean, yes, might be great, but that, that GDP hit would largely hit uh, financial services, Uh, Financial services is 18% of our economy, the largest contributor to the exchequer. It would probably lead to massive cuts in public spending. Mm. Would people be happy with that? So this is the dilemma that the Swiss and Norwegians have, and unfortunately this is the dilemma we're going to face in our future. Our future will be negotiating with the monster on the other side of the Mm. table, which is the EU and the EU single market. We will lose most of the rounds in that battle, and our public will become increasingly Eurosceptic as a result. Okay,
0: thanks. Uh, Tony and then Jill. Tony, um, 67% bullying, and also if you could take the question about might Brexit not happen? Then, right, then okay. Jill.
1: Well, <clears throat> let's do it in reverse order. Personally, I think Brexit will happen, but I could <clears throat> say more about that. I think the process is now um, moving on, even you know, events like this evening, a sort of eventuality to it, that... Um, I think, stopping and the the sort of chaos of stopping and trying to back out of it politically and in other ways would be extremely difficult, but others may have more thought through views on that than me. But on the um, 67% point, I think that, that, of course, the public might think that, but we're back to the the people in this who most intrigue me now, which are parliamentarians. That is, the majority of MPs in uh, just about for the Conservatives, certainly for Labour, on balance are against this policy, not to the point of not leaving the EU, in my view, but certainly probably not, to pick up Simon's point, to the point of inflicting a large cut in public spending and GDP and employment in the constituencies. And according to the, you know, the government's own um, research published on this subject that the areas that voted for Brexit are more likely to be hit hardest by Brexit than those like London, which voted uh, to remain. So I just, you know, maybe MPs, and I'm I'm intrigued by the line that um, Alice Thompson and others have written about in the Times about the fact that the Prime Minister and many members of the government and parliamentarians are pushing through Parliament something they believe to be bad for the country. (laughs) An intriguing idea that that, you know, that politicians, whatever you think of them broadly, you know this better than me, think that what they're doing is good for the country. But for them, it's a sort of they're pushing against their own approach to the world. They probably don't think that yet. They're still plugging ahead with it. So whether they really vote, as Simon says, to cut public spending to the NHS is an interesting question. Personally, I doubt it.
0: OK. Jill. Joe.
2: But I think it's very interesting if you pick up on that. Um, And I thought Simon's point about the Swiss and Norwegians, actually, is extraordinarily interesting. Because the one thing that the Prime Minister says, and I think she actually is probably right, is that if we went for what we call a soft Brexit, so a sort of Norway-style EEA rule-taking arrangement, Jeremy Corbyn at the weekend was saying that's very difficult for the UK, Mm. even if that were on offer, that would be that would be life, would be actually being increasingly annoyed by the EU. And that's why I think it's really interesting. It's like when those sort of arrows in possibility theorems I did way back when, when I was uh, actually did I could, you know <laughs> did uh, studies rather than you know, lurked around in government or whatever, it's not a blinding clear to me that people's preference sets actually go, you know, remain EA, da-da-da-da-da. Because da, 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 da. actually there's a logical case for saying that Norway is... Not the answer, the sort of magic bullet that gets you out of this dilemma. I don't want to be part of the EU, but I don't want a hard Brexit. It actually is the worst of all worlds. And I know some remainers and some, you know, uh, people in the Conservative world Remainers who say actually that is, you know, if we're not, good, you're either a member, you're properly in, or you're actually properly out, and then you're seeing how many pluses you can add to your Canada and seeing where the flexibility is there. So I think that would be a very awkward thing, and you know, that 67% goes. Up and up and up. I do think that one of the things that I think is really interesting and some of the points Catherine's making is that Lord Kerr, I used to work for John Kerr uh, way back when, when I was a little treasury muppet. Um, He's brilliant at drafting, but I have to say Article 50 was not his finest hour. Article 50 is a rubbish article. (laughs) um, Because actually... It only works as far as I can see. I mean, Catherine might know, you know, it's done by people who think, oh, yeah, God, we'd better get out clause, let's put that in. Yeah, it doesn't matter, no one will ever use it. Because actually the fact that you can't agree your future relationship during that period is ridiculous if you want to actually have any sort of sensible... Arrangement. I think the two-year period is clearly... They keep on saying you can't do that sort of deal in two years. It only works, basically, if you're chucking someone out and saying, go into an EEA-style arrangement, here's one we prepared earlier. You can't do a Canada-style deal. Michel Barnier always says Canada takes five years. So I think, uh, I think it's whatever. I think on... Will Brexit not happen? I think you have to see, if, you, if there was to be any prospect of that, you'd need to see a hugely bigger shift in public opinion than any polls suggest now. Because if you think that that would only be doable through a second referendum, the timing's all quite tricky on that, or whatever, maybe in a sort of prolonged standstill transition. But I think you wouldn't go back to doing that unless you were sort of pretty clear that public opinion was now coming around, something like 75, 25, 70, 30, that actually Brexit was a horrible mistake. So I don't think we're near that yet.
0: Catherine, and then we'll come back. Catherine.
2: Should I deal with the question about um,
4: EU nationals? So um, as far as EU nationals who are currently here... They're in pretty good position. They will get settled status if they've done five years, if they are already here, or if they arrive during transition that crept out um, on the 28th of February when the withdrawal um, agreement was published. They will start to be able to accumulate the period to get the five years. Furthermore, they get quite a lot of the rights that they currently currently enjoy under the Citizens' Rights Directive, and they are um, quite extensively fleshed out in the withdrawal agreement. Uh, uh, Post-Brexit, we don't know is the answer to that question, what's going to happen to... um, Free movement. We know free movement in and of itself will stop in the form that it is now. The question is, and one I think the government is divided on, and that's why the immigration white paper keeps being delayed, is should uh, all non-UK nationals be treated the same, in other words EEA nationals be treated in the same way as Indian or Pakistani citizens, or should EEA nationals continue to have a more favourable immigration regime? And this is a fundamental question to which there is no answer. What we at the moment being provided, I think there's a tussle in the cabinet, (coughs) what I would say is What has been remarkable is that free movement in whatever form is very much the elephant in the room. We hear endlessly about trade, but in fact it's worth bearing in mind that free movement of goods, goods only constitute 15% of our economy. Services is 70, 80, which depends how you do the sums of our economy, but yet services are largely delivered by people. And so there's been remarkably little said about people. Now, in Theresa May's Mansion House speech, she does say that there will be a good deal in respect to those temporarily providing services, I'm to use the jargon, the sort of Gat's mode for. But what I found more remarkable about Theresa May's speech was she did say for the very first time that UK citizens will still want to work and study in EU countries, just as EU citizens will want to do the same here, helping to shape and drive growth. Um, and we are open to discussing how to facilitate these valuable links. This is now—it's just—it's buried in the middle. It's on page 15 of 29. But it is there, and I do read that as a more positive sign that we are going to stay more open than some of the um, more uh, dire predictions had been. And, of course, wearing our university hats, this is, of course, extremely important to us. And it's a quid pro quo for really having full involvement in research and innovation schemes, which are dependent on free movement of persons in some form. In answer to your question, oh, I should just say, if you're not an UK national if you're I don't know what nationality you are that's not what uh, if you were if you were French just to (laughs) say (laughs) (laughs) if you were French you don't rush into getting UK nationality because if you become a British citizen (laughs) you promptly lose the benefit of what's in the withdrawal agreement in respect of uh, third uh, country family members. (laughs) Just in respect of your question about can Brexit be stopped, you've heard the political dimension. The legal dimension is we don't officially know the answer to that. Article 50 doesn't say whether the notification process can be withdrawn. Most people think it probably can because at the moment we haven't left. And the question is, is it unilateral or does it require the agreement of the EU? Um, the agreement to the EU might be more forthcoming if there, it had been followed by a democratic moment, for example, a general election or a second referendum, which, an election which was fought entirely on remain leave, uh, or um, a, um, a, a referendum also fought along those lines. But the timing, the, the window for this to occur is getting ever shorter. Um, more complicated is if the uk suddenly gets very close to the 29th of march 2019 Mm -hmm. and they panic because actually things have gone very badly in the negotiations and we're not getting anywhere could we suddenly pull the plug on the notification then with a view to reinstating it a bit later to trigger another two-year period and that seems to me to be much less plausible as a scenario for the eu to say yes we can stop it
0: Although obviously much more fun, Simon. Very, too, very, very briefly.
3: So a couple of very quick things. One on the on the politics of can mm-hmm. we reverse this? I think well, the, I think there's a misconception amongst a lot of MPs in the House of Commons that they want a meaningful vote uh, in time for them to, in case they want to reject the deal that's done. So then they can, def, you know, delay leaving. From the EU side, I think they, they think that's nuts in that there's just not enough. There wouldn't be enough time okay. after the House of Commons voting against it. i want to say one very quick thing about. The other issue that's not been debated very much in the UK on the nationals thing is e- UK nationals in the EU. Mm. And the, the deal that has now been no. done that's in the, 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 the draft uh, withdrawal agreement is surprisingly bad for UK nationals on the continent. The British government has done very little to stand up. With. My sister lives in the Netherlands. Her and her family mm. are UK citizens. Under Dutch law, you're not allowed to get dual nationality. Yeah. So they, 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 they would have to give up their British citizenship. But the, the re- agreement says that they only have rights to stay in the Netherlands. They don't have rights to live and work in any other yes. EU member states. So yes. yes. the, the choice okay. is either come back to the UK or stay where they are.
0: Let's, Sorry, forgive me. Let's open it up to more uh, questions. Lady here, please.
5: Thank you very much. I'm Maggie Ellis. I'm, I'm here doing uh, things about Europe. And uh, I'm concerned about anyone who quotes percentages about anything, because the first question should always be whose percentage was it and who did the research. We know the red wine companies who did research about red wine producing totally different answers than those who were producing water. So that's very important. And I think one of the big dangers in this country is that the press are controlled by right-wing barons who mostly don't live here. And so there is a big danger that we forget we know that a lot of old people voted to leave. We're told already that a lot of them had died. Okay. 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 (laughs) Quick, quick point. Please, please, can you do something to tell people out here what the laws really are? Because most people I meet have no idea, not only about what you've said but what we need to know about Strasbourg and what happens okay. in Brussels.
0: Okay, many thanks for taking that as a comment. Can we take the gentleman
3: here? Then we'll go back. Yeah, so I was, um, I was listening on the second referendum, and it kind of brought a thought to my mind, is about how in the political climate right now, there's a, there's a movement towards votes at 16. So I was thinking that what, what do you guys think if young people should have a better say right. in Brexit and if even 16-year-olds should have had a vote in okay, so reason. we
0: can combine these questions. Uh, if we simply wait for people to leave uh, this planet, as it were, <laughs> moving to a better life, and we give uh, 16-year-olds the vote, uh, we may have a different uh, outcome. The lady in yellow, uh, almost at the back. Uh, okay.
5: Thank you. Well, my uh, question is much more general. Uh, I would like to know, so now uh, where the negotiations have come to, I would like to know if you had the chance to meet Theresa May and give her a recommendation that she might listen to, what would, it, what would they be? <laughs> <laughs> like nice. three, three recommendations, let's say. Oh, I
0: the, it, okay, okay. And let's take uh, another question. Uh, gentleman over there, please. Hi, thank you very much for today. Um, Jill,
1: you briefly mentioned the devolved bodies in this country. I was just wondering what effect any of you thought they might have on the negotiation process or the domestic legal process
0: as over the
1: next year or so.
0: Okay. Could we have some very quick answers so we can get another round? And Catherine, do you want to start off?
4: Um, In answer to the ladies' question at the front Um, in essence it boils down to tremendous confusion between the European Court of Human Rights and the European Court of Justice I think Mm. if every lawyer was given a pound for the time that people have said well the reason I voted leave was because of those dreadful terrorists and the fact that they're stopped we can't deport them we would all be rich or certainly academics would be rich and as practitioners they'd be very rich but the point is that the Court of Human Rights, nothing to do with the European Union this mild overlap but basically separate legal systems and the European Court of Justice which has become a red line it was not a red line for the UK in the in the referendum but it became a red line in Theresa May's speech um, in the party conference in October 2016 was inculcated with this sense that all European courts were a bad thing now if you just take a step back and say hang on isn't it good that there is an external body that judges on human rights and says whether a member state's in violation? Well, that's the European Court of Human Rights. It's not what's in play at the moment. We're not leaving um, the uh, European Convention, although it may well be um, in the Conservative Party manifesto for the next election. European Court of Justice always vilified in the British press, but of course, in fact, the European Court of Justice has decided cases in favour of the UK, particularly over um, whether clearing can be done, Um, um, only in the Eurozone or whether it can also be done um, in London. And, of course, if you want a trade agreement of some sort, you need an arbiter, you need a referee to um, ensure that the rules of the game are complied with. And the one thing that's always puzzled me is um, the Hardest Core levers talk about the WTO as the fallback position and and the marvels of the WTO. Well, the WTO too has a settlement, mm. dispute settlement uh, understanding. The DSU it has its own um, uh, panel and appellate body because you need to have rules of the game, even at the global level, being monitored. So this vilification of international courts or other settlement bodies, I think, is fundamentally misplaced.
0: OK. Jill?
2: Okay, um, let's do sort of uh, bits of advice to Theresa, bits of votes. Briefly. Um, advice to Theresa is uh, spend more time uh, understanding and talking to Europeans than just talking to your own cabinet and trying to manage all of them. I think on the, uh, on the franchise, you can obviously always say, you know, wouldn't it be produce a different result if we slightly tweak the franchise and do, do all of those things? Um, but this has been an immensely long-running issue i think there are quite a lot of people who think that you know 20 10 15 years hence we might have another look at this and actually you know now we've experienced life outside the eu see in which way geopolitics has gone we might then decide to uh go back in and uh that might be the chance for your current 16 year olds to have their say
3: okay uh, simon very briefly um i advice to raise I'm really, really worried about Ireland being the cause of this breaking down. Um, I think she needs to go to Dublin. I think she needs to sit down with Leo Varadkar and they need to come sort of some kind of deal. We are heading towards a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. Almost everybody inside government accepts that. Almost everybody inside Brussels accepts that. That's where we're heading. Nobody's willing to say that politically publicly. So they need to just go and do a deal of some kind of arrangement. How actually are they going to manage that border? There will be a border, and the sooner they admit that publicly, the sooner they can start to address the political challenges that... Many thanks.
0: Tony, briefly.
3: Uh, Well... Votes at 16,
1: not before this. If there were to be a second referendum, which I personally doubt, the idea the government would have enough time to introduce a legislative change <laughs> required to get votes for 16-year-olds before that, I'm afraid, not likely. So I'd go on campaigning if you think votes at 16 are a good idea, but it won't happen before there's a second referendum. And as to, just building on Simon's uh, advice about advan- uh, adv- advice to Mrs May on the Northern Ireland front, um, it's always interesting, to, and I've said this before, to look at the Northern Ireland border, the countryside bits, mm. on Google Street View, just mm. to see what it looks like. It's little tracks. It's not, as I think people imagine, big roads. It's little tracks in the countryside with nothing other than an 80 kmph, 60 kmph sign, and sometimes not even that. So I think visiting it by Google Street View, if in other, no other way, would be a good thing to do. <laughs>
3: okay. <laughs>
0: Very good. Uh, sorry, can we take the uh, guy here in the um, pink jumper? Thank you very much. Um, when all is said we're done with Brexit, do you still see Scotland being part of the UK? <laughs> yeah. Okay, thanks for the Scotland. brevity. Can we take the guy up here, please?
3: Thanks. Um, just a question for um, Professor Barnard. What do you think of the slew of recent new legal cases that have all sort of been started to try and throw a spanner in the works? And on the point about the panic um, if at the last minute, um, I don't think it's going to be possible to revoke the notification without a fresh Act of Parliament, which may, which may be another problem. I don't take your view on that as well.
0: OK, thanks. Uh, and the gentleman here.
3: Uh, what are the implications of Canada's most favoured nation clause on any future trade deal with the UK? Canada's most, f- most
0: favoured, and then the gentleman just
4: here. I'm today's newspaper, um, Anna Sudbury and um, Chukka um, said um, leaving the EU is more complicated than any of us, meaning the electorate, um, Ever imagined? Um, Is there a lack of citizenship, um, civic understanding, and critical thinking in the electorate about Brexit? Has the electorate abdicated and does it matter?
0: Okay, thanks. And the gentleman here. Okay, um, thank you very much. Uh, Just wondering realistically, do you think that there will be more immigration from um, Commonwealth countries after we leave? Because that was an argument used a lot to attract BME voters, that people from Pakistan, India, Ghana would actually be able to come? Do you think that was just a tactic to attract them, or realistically, do you think, will happen? Okay, thanks. And a gentleman here, finally. Uh,
3: The interim between the uh, the UK uh, UK leaving Europe and um, trade deals being signed by Liam Fox, does... Presumably, that would they would during that interim, Britain would have to trade under WTO um, regulations. And I, has that been thought out? Uh, to me, it's a bit nightmarish that you're not part of the no longer part of the EU, but you haven't signed deals with third third party countries.
0: Okay, I take the theme of the evening that <laughs> things hadn't been fully thought out at any stage. But, um, Catherine, do you want to start off with the uh, law Lord. aspects? <laughs>
4: Um, Still of new legal cases, they are testing um, ever more detailed and complex uh, points. Um, I think um, it's a sign of just how passionate those who, on the Remain side, are desperate to find any way at all they can to try and um, put a spanner in the works of the process. Um, Courts are the only way because... um, it looks like the second referendum isn't going to happen, which is why there is an increasing interest in that. Now, they're doing different things. Some are trying to hold up the process. Others, the one that started in the Netherlands, is about trying to improve the lot of uh, citizens like um, Simon's sister. Um, and uh, And so... The chance of success, I think, relatively slim. But on the other hand, that's what people said about the Miller case, and look what happened to that. Um, and it really did make—I um, mean, it did make legal history. And of course, it, it had the paradoxical effect of giving Theresa May double legitimacy: both a, a popular legitimacy to, uh, to lead the European Union, but also a parliamentary legitimacy for leaving because there was an Act of Parliament. Do you need an Act of Parliament to? Um, withdraw the um, notification. Possibly, on the other hand, the rationale for having the Act of Parliament in the first place was it was going to be denying citizens quite a lot of rights by leaving. Of course, by withdrawing the notification, that would have the effect of returning to the status quo citizens would not be losing those rights. So um, there could be a legal argument to be made that you don't need a second act of um, parliament. In respect of your question about will there be more immigration from countries like India and Pakistan, this goes back to the fundamental question I mentioned before about what will our future immigration policy look like. Some politicians, (coughs) I think, did believe the fact that they were open, they were going to go for a global Britain, and a global Britain would be a very opening uh, immigration environment. But we know that those who voted to leave fell into a number (coughs) of different groups. Some were the globalists who were advocating that sort of thing, but there was an awful lot of people who voted to leave because they were concerned about um, what they saw as uh, excessive immigration and so therefore wouldn't want to have a more relaxed immigration policy. It is worth bearing in mind that even now, where, in respect of immigration coming in from non-EEA countries, the level of migration is still higher, just a bit higher, uh, where the UK has full control than it is over EEA migration, where the numbers are going down and the UK doesn't have the same level of control. Migration from non-EEA states has always been higher than migration from EEA states.
0: Simon, do you want to speak up on the Canada question or other aspects?
3: Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but uh, I can say a little bit about trade. Let me say first about Scotland. My, I, I think what's fascinating about the public opinion polls in Scotland is how there was a little blip in, in increase in support for Scottish independence after the referendum, but then it settled back down to more or less where it was before, which is 55% against independence, 45% in favour of independence. And a good friend of mine works in the Scottish government, and I asked him... And, and, you know, what he thought about this. And he said, Simon, here's the challenge for the SNP in Scotland. It's that that independence is much easier if we're both in the EU because you wouldn't really notice Mm. it. There wouldn't be a border, there wouldn't be customs controls, you keep the pound, you keep the queen, you keep the subs on the Clyde, and so on. Uh, if we're outside the EU and now we leave the UK, Westminster's going to say, well, we're going to build a wall, we're going to build a border, there'll be <laughs> customs checks, you, have to go, you guys have to have new passports, that's a much harder sell. And so he, uh, he said the only thing that would change that is if there is a major downturn in the UK economy. And that's blamed on Brexit. And then that changes the debate about Scotland, which will then be vote to leave the UK to save the Scottish economy so we can get back in the single market. Um, but that's hugely uncertain. We don't know where that's going to happen. That, that, for me, is the only thing that really would change
0: the debate on Scotland. Thanks. There was a question specifically about Canada as well. No, this
3: is about the, the most favoured nation status yes. and, the, and trade issues. And there's two questions on trade mm-hmm. here. One is about the UK. Uh, what does the UK do with the 750 international agreements that the EU has signed. So the UK already has 750 agreements with other countries across the world by virtue of its EU membership, uh, including two really huge trade agreements, one with Canada and one with South Korea. Um, And the idea is that during that transition period, they will have to be renegotiated. We will stay effectively in the customs union during that transition period. At the end of that transition period, they will have to have new arrangements in place to replace all of those agreements. In fact, the one country in the world that we have more international agreements with than anyone else is Switzerland. And so there's a whole division in DEXU that's just dealing with trade agreements that the UK currently has with Switzerland, and what are we going to do when we leave? Okay. Jill?
2: So, that I mean, that's a very major piece of work, is dealing with all of that. I just wanted to go to the point about uh, the electorate not understanding all the complexities i don't think actually anyone understood the complexities uh, i think one of the things that's happened since brexit certainly in whitehall is that people have just begun to understand how interlocked we are whether it's the 750 agreements whether it's all these other things that basically my analogy is she says analogy time is that Brexit's a bit like a bit of damp on your wall and you think you can deal with it just by cutting out that bit of damp. And then you take that away and you see it spread all over the place into areas you never expected to have to deal with. And that's actually one of the things that people in Whitehall are absolutely grappling with. I just wanted to talk about most favoured nation. Lots of people say most favoured nation. As I understand it, um, the EU would have to sort of, under the Canada free trade deal, the different most favoured nation clauses in the South Korea deal, Simon mentioned. I think, not as a lawyer, what um, most favoured nation means is if they do a deal, they have to offer that deal to those countries. Now, say the deal on financial services required the UK to submit to a lot of EU supervision, lots of approximation to EU rules, Canada might say, actually, no thanks, you know, we're not that interested, but that's what an MFN... Deal would mean exactly. so. Yeah. So yeah. We'll see where we see where we get to. There were, of course, you know, some enhanced provisions on regulatory cooperation in TTIP, as we keep on being reminded, which Michel Barnier was the sort of you know upfront negotiator on. Though apparently those were all at the behest of the UK Treasury, so <laughs> they may not be pressing in that direction quite so much anymore.
0: Thanks, Tony Well, on the <clears throat> was it all
1: too complex? It was obviously complex so in fairness I think that if you are strongly in favour of Brexit and there are probably not as many people are strongly in favour of Brexit in the audience tonight as other audiences then I think a significant minority of them think it isn't complicated they think it's dead easy mm. and that we should just go ahead with it in an optimistic way you know given the 60 whatever it was percent who th- think we're all being bullied and if we just get on with it and do it then it'll be fine And, of course, 25 years from now, it will be. Everything will be 30, 40, 50 years out from now. So there's that issue. And then on the migration point, intriguingly, the debate about the EU and migration is completely tangled with an entirely separate policy to reduce migration to the tens of thousands. These are separate policies that happen to overlap because of uh, the... Now, we've already seen a fall-off of... EU, EEA migrants uh, since uh, June 20, uh, two years ago. But what's intriguing is if you look at the December figures produced by the Office for National Statistics, they show an uptick in non-EU, non-EA migration from Asia. So the government's got to handle that as an entirely separate issue, and I take your point, some of the promises that were made during the referendum, but the truth is the UK either needs immigration net or it needs an entirely different industrial strategy and training for people who are currently outside the workforce. Neither have we actually seen in any detail thus far. Okay, I
0: think we've covered so many different issues in a very informed manner. And some take-homes here. In a year's time, we're going to be talking about Article 218. (laughs) There's a withdrawal and implementation bill to be talking about. And don't forget Tony Travers' final comment that in 40 to 50 years' time, everything's going to be fine. (laughs)